Hello, and welcome to the Science and the City podcast, your gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, Nadia Popovich. Oyster reefs were once so abundant in New York Harbor that they were considered shipping hazards. Today, the population is a mere fraction of what it once was. But thanks to the work of some enthusiastic groups, like the New York Harbor School for one, New York City oysters are making a comeback. Last week, Science in the City put on a panel discussion led by award-winning journalist Andrew Revkin, featuring a diverse panel of experts talking about what it will take to restore New York Harbor oysters. Now, due to popular demand, we bring you that lecture via podcast. You'll hear from Paul Greenberg, best-selling author of Four Fish, The Future of the Last Wild Food, and a regular contributor to the New York Times Magazine, book review, and opinions page. Landscape architect Kate Orff, assistant professor at Columbia University's Graduate School of Architecture, and founder of the Manhattan-based design studio, Scape. And lastly, Pete Malinowski, marine science aquaculture teacher at the New York Harbor School. But now, I turn it over to Andy Revkin. So I'm, I'm thrilled to be here for like many different reasons, one of which is I was at the Harbor School for the first time a few months ago, and I felt terrible that I hadn't been there longer ago. Um, and I think I see some of the students that I met with at that time. It's an incredible enterprise, just the, the idea of having a school that's centered in a multidisciplinary way around this, this feature of the city that for most city residents is sort of an also-ran aspect of the environment around them is, is just incredibly exciting. And again, it's that multidisciplinary quality that's so ex rich. It, you know, they're building the boats. They're diving under the, uh, under the sea uh, with scuba gear. They're learning these incredible life skills as well as uh, learning about this, this harbor. Um, and it's such a, what a, what a great classroom to have. I, do, you, do you ever get tired of going to work? <laughs> um, everyone gets to hear about all the CTE classes. And um, what you sometimes miss is that there's 35 teachers all who are incredibly dedicated, really, really good at their jobs. You know, there's it's the English teachers and the science teachers and the math teachers and social studies teachers who really mold these kids into the people they are and allow us to do all the fun work that we do. I think that sometimes gets missed. But. I just have to put out a shout out to Roy Arezzo, who's in the. Can you stand up, Roy? Come on. Um, in, in 1999, I wrote an article about this project, another interesting project called um, Trout in the Classroom. And Roy was in a, at, a, at a poor school in um, Williamsburg, I think, and they figured out how to how to grow trout in, in Brooklyn. And uh, in the 1800s, there were a lot of trout in Brooklyn. I, um, and there were actually streams. There was a book once called Trout in American Waters that I wrote about a long time ago that talked about the time when, when Coney Island had the best trout fishing. So it, also, the other thing that maybe, Paul, you could dive in on, so, so to speak, is just how this harbor has gone through this cycle of being empty and now kind of rich, well, maybe potentially richer, uh, but, but much richer than it has been. So give, give a sense yeah. of history here. Well, I mean, first of all, as far as oysters are concerned, you know, the average New Yorker in, before 1900 would eat about 600 local New York City oysters a year. So right then and there is an amazing statistic. Um, over and above that, um, you know, there are many, many documentations of the amount of fish and the amount of biomass that we had in the harbor. Um, sturgeon, you know, that used to be called, sturgeon actually used to be called Albany beef. Um, uh, you know, I don't know why I was trying to substitute for some other kind of beef, but there was just a tremendous uh, amount of seafood around. 
Um, of course, you know, the story is, is sad of, of, of devastation of oyster beds, first from outright harvest, and then from pollution. Um, but I won't dwell on that because I think sometimes there's a sort of, you know, 60s era too much dwelling on how much we destroyed. That's done. Um, where we are now, though, is that thanks to the 1972 Clean Water Act, we actually have enough oxygen in the water to support things like oysters. Um, you know, whenever I hear uh, people attacking clean water, clean air, I always think that that's probably the most um, ignorant thing that you could possibly do. Um, and the fact that the New York Harbor scene is actually waking up from this long nightmare is evidence that we actually can legislate good environment and that we can then take the next step. And for me, the oyster and the oyster restoration is kind of pushing the envelope of clean water. It's, you know, we've taken clean water about as far as we can take it under the current regime. Now let's turn it over to the biomechanics, the oysters, and see what they can do with it. Um, what's your sense of what you see when you hear about uh, an oyster nursery on the sh hatchery on the shoreline of Brooklyn? Well, I mean, for me, it's it's incredibly exciting to think. I mean, just to pick up one, what Paul said about this transforming harbor, because how I see it. The entire sort of New York Harbor has gone through this profound shift. I mean, we had this incredibly heavy industrial use of our waterfronts just even, you know, 50 years ago. And now with the Clean Water Act and also with the sort of evolution from very heavy industry to light industry and frankly a more recreational use of the waterfront, I think what would be incredibly exciting is to start to think about transforming the water's edge, you know, so that there's a kind of interaction, a different kind of interaction with oysters and marine life, and to start to kind of integrate much of the sort of scientific thinking that has been part of the oyster restoration discussion into a kind of reimagining of the public realm. And I feel like, you know, what the students were talking about, how the water is too fast and the oyster shells break off. I mean, I feel like there's going to be some, I don't know if the word is tipping point, but there's going to be some point where where we start to reimagine our city's edges so it's not just a bulkhead and a kind of piece of grass and a historic light, but we can reimagine the edges and re-engineer the edges that has a more kind of catalytic effect, a growing effect that starts to slow the water, that makes places for people to get out and wade in the water. I love that picture. And um, so it's not dangerous. And, and I feel like this oyster restoration um, and sort of public space revitalization could really go hand in hand. So yes, I, <laughs> I can totally see it. And is, is part of this, this um, an awakening of cities to the potential to be modern, but also um, be kind of, I don't, I don't want to use the word organic in the like Birkenstock sandal way, but, but organic meaning more softer, essentially. This, a city that has a, a soft edge is, is kind of a foreign concept right now. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think many of us are just, you know, who live in New York and love New York, you kind of realize that the, with design, and I guess I'm he, up here as a sort of designer, urban, urban planner, but with design, you, the sort of idea of city and nature don't have to necessarily be exclusive. Of course, there are conflicts and, you know, areas where you cannot sort of mediate the two, but I think with thinking um, with the right thinking, with right planning, with the right mentality. And, and, and on this note, what's very exciting for my, for my field is that the city, um, city planning department has come out with new waterfront guidelines for the edges, encourage, encouraging, hopefully, with being you know, inspired by the Oyster Texture Project, in, you know, encouraging 
mosaics of habitat for our, our waterfront edges. And so it seems to me like there is this realization now with the new economy, with the Clean Water Act, and with a kind of better sense of um, contaminants and the sort of nitrogen loads that there's great potential. And I, I, I think that there's this, this hard to soft thing um, is, is a process that's been happening over 40 years. If you look at the west side um, of the river, um, once upon a time within my lifetime, within many of you, yours lifetime, there was actually an active proposal to put like a six lane highway down the west side. It was going to be called Westway. And it was going to make the hardest fricking shoreline you've ever seen. Yeah. Um, fortunately for the Endangered Species Act, um, it was discovered that there were spawning striped bass in the pilings off of the west side. And that stopped that project cold in its tracks. Thanks to people like John Walden and the Hudson River Foundation, really, really turned it around. So it was like, OK, we're not going to have a six lane highway. All right, well, if we're not going to have a six lane highway, what could we have? And then you start to see the blooming of the Hudson River Park and this amazing green space that suddenly people are actually stepping out to the water's edge and looking in the water. But it's funny, you get there now, and I was talking with Paul Mankiewicz um, the other day from the Gaia Institute, and I was saying, well, you know, what's the next step? And he's like, he's like, that shoreline's too hard. You know, that, I mean, I love the Hudson River Park, but, you know, imagine 20 years from now if you could have a sloping reef of right. oysters coming down from that, that would be even a, a better waterfront and a more engaging waterfront. And by the way, this kind of, um reconceiving of engineering is not having hard edges. Uh, all through the Mississippi River uh, Valley after the epic flooding of the last, well, last, last year? Was it just last, yeah. a year or two ago? And then 1993, there's much more focus on green, kind of green engineering. And not green, again, not in a Birkenstock way, but in, in a practical way. When you realize that if you're going to manage floodwaters, it's a lot easier to do it without a hard edge when you, have, when you soften you have, to, you have to give back a little landscape, a little real estate to nature. But when you do that, you have a much more robust, flexible system. It's, it's funny that oysters play a huge role there, or also could play a huge role. I mean, we, I had done some work in the lower Mississippi. And as everyone in this room probably knows, that it, oysters were a huge industry and, and have experienced quite, the industry has been rocked by the forces of sort of salinization and fresh, you know, the, the, the changing chemistry of fresh to salt. And the, the great irony there relative to the food discussion too is that, you know, this place in southern Louisiana that's been kind of, I want to say, almost contaminated by many of the, pet, you know, the petrochemical and the oil industry and, and affected by the sort of pipelines that have been drilled deep and cut deep into the bayou areas. You know, at this time, like America is losing this great source of protein, which oysters really were. And instead, you know, there's the big industry there is manufacturing uh, nitrogen and, you know, fertilizers and pesticides, chemicals that are then being shipped up to the Midwest where they're, you know, growing corn. So I feel like oysters, not only as infrastructure, but as food, it is something that is just so incredibly exciting to think about, not only at the scale of the New York Harbor, but more kind of globally, and, and, and especially in the case of the sort of southern coast. There's also what I would call the New York effect of, of doing oysters here. Um, you know, years ago when Robert Moses was, you know, the grand planner of New York, um, the whole idea of designing a city with quick escape routes and arms le reaching out into Long Island and suburbs and sprawl and all that kind of thing, we kind of created that. You know, it wasn't a great thing that we did it, yeah. but we did it. If New York could show by example 
that you can actually have a different approach to the city. I do believe others will follow. You know, I remember it should be noted also that we, I was out at Soundview uh, with the Harbor School guys, and there are actually still some remnant oysters. Uh, in addition to the introduced reef that these guys are doing, there are some native oysters creeping back into the harbor. And I remember picking one up in my hand, and, I, and uh, you know, it sounds cheesy, but I thought, well, if you can make it here, <laughs> you can make it anywhere. And, but I mean, but, and Pete, you're using those same oysters, right, to breed uh, in the um, facility. Yeah, we have, we have those oysters that we're going to use as broodstock in our lab, and they have some out of Cornell Cooperative Extension that they're using. Native is an interesting term because we don't know when they came back into New York Harbor. But we've seen recruitment, it's what we call the spatfall of native or wild oysters on our reefs at the three reefs that we really got a good look at. So we've covered you know, a tenth of an acre of all of New York Harbor with oyster reef. It's kind of like putting a dime in the middle of a basketball court and then throwing a handful of sand out and expecting it to land on the dime. You know, and like the, there has to be so much sand for, to, for any of those larvae to find one of our reefs. It makes you realize there's actually millions and millions of oyster larvae that are, that are just getting lost every year because there's nothing left on the bottom for them to attach to. This is a, also a great example of, um, I think we underrate the potential of nature to, to uh, explosively respond to a little bit of room, a little bit of space, a little bit of <laughs> attention. True. Uh, this goes for many other ecosystems around the world where you've seen examples like that where if you just give, give, give nature a little space, a little opportunity, right. amazing things can happen. And you, so you've seen this, I assume. With, with uh, the oysters, and I think Long Island Sound has seen it with striped bass in the last 10 sure. years. I mean, yeah, I sure. think that obviously a product of a cleaner Hudson River, and that's quick. So what, what, what city policy or uh, federal policy could be the biggest benefit here? You, t you mentioned, this, the students mentioned, and showed that picture of the combined sewage overflow CSOs, which you know in big old cities basically when, when it rains too much, all that water goes through the same system that the, the wastewater goes through and it just can't handle it. So that it all gets dumped. And is there some, is that the biggest threat? What is, what's the thing that's holding well, back? I, I, think, I think it's funny that, that you mentioned that in the panels, you know, can oysters save New York Harbor? And what could save New York Harbor is if we stopped dumping raw sewage into New York Harbor. You know, that's, yeah. that's <laughs> obviously like the biggest problem we have. <laughs> We have a natural resources that we cannot take advantage of in our backyard. And we yeah. can't take advantage of them because they're contaminated with our own waste. This is a problem third world countries have with their water. You know, and we were right. sitting in New York City and polluting our environment in the same way. So I mean, that's, obvi that's obviously the biggest problem. I think it can be fixed, but it's... Mm -hmm. And I think it's a kind of cat and mouse game that regulators and oyster restorers play because, you know, Health people don't necessarily want a lot of oysters out there because what if somebody ate them, et cetera, et cetera. But the oyster people are like, clean up your poop, and you know, then the oysters will be okay. So you know, it, it, again, it's it's the clean water. The oyster to me is the, is the living embodiment of the Clean Water Act. You know, putting out its pedavelager and you know saying no, don't don't dump that in the water. I, I wanted to just follow up and about your question, Annie, because also I'm I was raised in the Annapolis, Maryland area, and I'm sure many people in this in this room know, but somehow I feel like the state of Maryland, maybe it's because of the geography of the Chesapeake Bay as something that holds together the state, but I feel like the state of Maryland has, has been able to make a lot of progress in from the governor's level down and just setting up restoration committees, setting up, um, you know, working closely with the, the graduate testing labs and so on. and. Um, collecting and recycling oyster shells. And so I also wonder, I mean, I think there are these things in play, but I, I also wonder if there isn't some, some other consortium or some other kind of visionary 
place or visionary kind of um, organizational structure that, that could kind of come into play or, or if it would be helpful to think about oyster restoration in a kind of a targeted place, like whether it's Jamaica Bay or a part of the Hudson that would help kind of, I don't know, streamline the efforts. I just wonder what you think of that or what I mean, your I thoughts are. It's a good point about how New York is just getting started on this. And, you know, to look at Chesapeake Bay and even Mobile Bay and the Gulf of Mexico, they've been doing this for 50 years. So it's those sort of systems are not in place. I mean, I'd like to think of Harbor School as the, as the type of place where something like that could take hold. And, you know, for the last three years, we've had the highest concentration of oysters in New York Harbor that has existed in 100 years growing at, at Harbor School, and I think that continues to expand. So make a bay maybe, but Governor's Island would be better for us. But, I mean, there's also something, you know, historically that's happened with oysters is that what you are seeing in New York or what, what we've seen until the Harbor School came along was the complete castration of the oyster industry in New York Harbor. I mean, once upon a time, you know, oyster growers in New York were very powerful people that, you know, carried a lot of influence. They, they always have in Chesapeake Bay. In fact, uh, the city of Baltimore was the first city to have a wastewater treatment plant in America. Why? Because they had powerful oyster growers who said, clean that up. Um, if you look on the West Coast, it's a very interesting thing. The state of Washington um, in the 1900s, early 1900s, had a, a series of laws called the Bush-Cowan Acts. And what that did was basically grant the intertidal to oyster growers. It said, you can, as an oyster grower, own the intertidal. It's not usually the case throughout the rest of the United States. And so when polluters started really damaging Puget Sound and, and areas that affected oyster growers, oyster growers could actually say, you know, actually you're screwing up our land um, and, and you're screwing up our property and you're screwing up our profit. So, you know, who knows, telescope 50 years, maybe, you know, Pete Malinowski will be a grand oyster baron and we'll, we'll be able to, you know, <laughs> shut these people down if they tread on him. But I do think that it is about reimagining, re-empowering, really reclaiming the intertidal for what its best, best purpose is. I mean, this shouldn't be a waste disposal system. This should be a food system. I think kind of looking at it backwards, we don't have to worry about this because it's so dirty that nothing can grow here. We can keep making it dirty. Right. Instead of, you know, this is something that we can use and as a value. And we're taking that value from it. Yeah, you have the benefit of this being a, a food. You, you know, it's actually pretty legendary and delicious food for those of us who love oysters. But it's not very charismatic, uh, and I'm wondering, um, is there at the school? Do you have a, like an oyster cam in your nurseries tanks and stuff? The New York Times, like we've had hawk cams on the New York Times website. But should we, should we, or could we have a, a an oyster spat cam? Spat cam. Spat cam. You're, you're certainly right about them not being charismatic. It would be pretty yeah. boring, pretty boring cam to watch. Well, I love that little foot, you know, and the it's little. It's really foot. exciting. It's really exciting. It's so for cute. About five days. There's a cute factor. <laughs> but I think the, the image that the student showed of yeah. the, that shoal, for me, was a very powerful image because that's the other issue with oysters, I guess, in this zone being subtidal, right? They're sort of where you have mussels being really in this intertidal zone is that it's a, to some degree invisible. And we're, you know, thinking about designing these, th these, these, um, these artificial, these reefs, I guess artificial also doesn't make sense, but these reef structures where people can kind of potentially see them and uh, visualize what's there seems to me like that would be incredibly, incredibly powerful because I really feel like with, with the people in this room that there's more of this incredible interest in the harbor and in, in an interaction with the water. And, and the more that we can kind of make the oyster visible, whether it's through a, a, a cam or through a kind of a park, that would be incredibly powerful. Thank you.
Thanks for listening. This has been a podcast of Science and the City, the public outreach program of the New York Academy of Sciences. Check us out online at www.scienceandthecity.org. You can catch the full lecture, including Q&A and a presentation from the students at the Harbor School, coming soon through our e-briefing website. Check www.nyas.org backslash openeb. That's all for now, but you can catch the podcast again next time when we bring back our series on nutrition.